So, moeilijkheid is ons bezigheid. In English means trouble is our business. And as we say at Echo, business is boom. For in case you don't notice, English is not my first language. I come from the free state, I lived in India for a while, and I tell you, it does have an effect. To give you an idea, the other day I had to speak at the TLF uh, at their, I was a speaker at one of the big events, and um, I spoke the national language of South Africa, which is broken English. I gave my best, I thought I nailed it. And then afterwards somebody came and said, you know what, Yaku, uh, it really went well, but maybe you noticed every now and again people laughed. I thought, yeah, that was actually quite a good reaction, I thought. He said, yeah, but, um, you know, you said, you, you wanted to say Jews and Gentiles, but you said Jews and genitals. So there's that. So, <laughs> I'm, I gave it my best with Leonard Sweet. He's one of the most articulate people that I know. And um, let me tell you something about the guy. Those of you who don't know, he was a, or he's still a church uh, history professor. He wrote more than 60 books, uh, published numerous articles. Um, the Church Report magazine called him one of the 50 most influential Christians in America. Uh, you can't really label him, though. He's a, on the one side, he's an academic but sometimes he sounds a lot like a mystic. He's evangelical, but he has the strong passion for social justice. He's not right, he's not left, and he's, he's not in the mediocre middle. It's as if he's promoting this, this different direction, this different way. Um, not left, not right, not in the middle, but, but maybe you can call it deeper, this alternative, deeper way. So, now, for my chat with Leonard Hi Leonard, maybe we can start off by just chatting a little bit about what's happening in the USA at this stage. Has the, the conversation in the church changed a lot since the election of Trump? We're living in a culture where increasingly um, it's no longer a bell curve world, it's a well curve world. So okay. the the middles are all dropping out and the ends are getting huge. And so um, so you have increasing polarization on both sides and with neither side talking to one another. And uh, um, in many ways, in the, in the U.S. at least, churches are in some ways even more segregated by politics than they are by race. Okay. So you've got churches where, you know, you'd never find a Trump supporter in a churches where you'd never find an anti-Trump supporter. So you've got really, um, the body of Christ has been heavily politicized, which I think is a, a very serious mistake. And uh, so, but that was, that was way before Trump. I mean, okay. that process started. It's part of wider, I mean, we're living, part of digital culture uh, drops out middles. All middles, all mediating structures are dropping out. And, and the, um, like, we could become more global, global, but also becoming more tribal, more local. Hmm. And um, so the, it's a both-and world. Uh, and the way in which you deal with that kind of world is you've got to build bridges. And you don't build a bridge by starting in the middle. You've got 
you got to start connecting the the ends, getting the ends to talk to one another, and that's what I'm I'm seriously worried about. Um, is that the the extremes aren't talking to one another? They're just living in their own little bubble and throwing brick bats at the other, and uh, so so it's a it's a heavily heavily politicized environment in the U.S. And right I suppose now. the one side is mad at you when you speak to the other side when you're too friendly. Then you you're a traitor, you know. You can't. Yeah, you speak if you kind speak words about either sides, side and. Um, the other side immediately goes into an annihilating fury. Yeah, so it's um, but that's what we have to do. I mean, that's what we're called to do is to the healing of these divisions. And uh, the other thing is to not mistake ends for means and uh, uh, and means for ends. It's a it's a world where increasingly the means are seen as ends in and of themselves, that by both sides. And uh, so that, that's a very dangerous situation when that happens. So it, it, another you know, evidence of this uh, kind of Welker world is you have increasing apocalypticism. And I mean, in the, in the you know, standard mantra of 12 years, we have 12 years to turn things around. And, the Doomsday Clock, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but yeah. that's the closest to 12 it's ever been in history. Even the Cuban Missile Crisis wasn't this close to an atomic Armageddon, mm. according to the, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists of the Academy. So you've got this increasing apocalypticism and pessimism, and uh, at the same time, you've got this heavy utopianism, millennialism. Well, we're going to end injustice, we're going to end racism, we're going to... You know, and the kingdom. We're going to bring in the kingdom, and this. this so you got this, this both utopianism, millennialism, if you will, and this apocalypticism, pessimism, and and sometimes you, they're coming out of the same people. I mean, you, you can't you can't figure it out. So, and then I, I'm a historian. I look back in history, and some of the worst nightmares in history have taken place either under extreme apocalypticism or millennialism. Oh, yes. And so we're living with both at the same time. So the dangers here, if we don't start talking to one another, um, are huge. Yeah, I think we forget. Uh, everybody's scared of the extreme right, but that some of the worst atrocities in history came from the extreme left. If you think of Mao Zedong with the Cultural Revolution in China or, or Lenin, uh, uh, I think it's maybe a time to remember that too. Look at Stalinism. I mean, this is just one of the most brutal. We're talking about hundreds of millions of people. I mean, and I think of Bolshevism. I mean, talk about a repugnant, repul re, you know, repressive force that Walter Rauschenbusch supported, one of my heroes. So, I mean, you could be right about some things and really wrong about others. Yeah, you know, and the, sure. the political alliances here... Um, are uh, really strange for some theologians. So, can, so there's a need for a third way, actually. Somebody uh, once said, I, I, I'm not sure who it was, but he, he said, don't go left, don't go right, go deeper. Yeah. and not, it, But it's not middle. Don't go... I mean, yeah, because the mediocre middle is, is nothing. It bingo. Is, it's it fallen is, out. And, yeah, so, yeah. You, but it's go, go Jesus, I just say. Yeah. You know, just Jesus is what can heal all divisions. Okay. And if you take your focus off of him, you're, you're doomed. And... You know, 
So the, we come up with these vision statements. Every church has to have a vision statement in the U.S. Well, why? You know, I grew up singing a song, Be Thou My Vision, hmm. O Lord of my life. Jesus is our vision. If he's our vision, you've got all the vision you can handle. Hmm. Um, now, you may disagree about the means, but that vision of Christ and what it means that, that he brings to the world um, and the news that he brings to the world, uh, we can, that's the end that can unite us all. Um, so, you know, the, the idea of having a church where generals and pacifists can worship together is uh, kind of inconceivable, incomprehensible right now. <laughs> you know, or Democrats or Republicans sitting in the same pew, impossible. Well, what happened? No. Do you think it's going to get worse? Well, uh, I don't see how much it can get much worse. I mean, the the um, the I don't see how it can get much worse. It's about as bad as it can get. So I, I live in. It's a very. That's why I did this book, Rings of Fire. It's a very volcanic culture. These volcanoes are erupting all the time. And the good news is, though, that lava-rich soil is magic for, for, for new plants. Yeah. It's magic for wine. Grapes grow best. And the best coffee in the world comes out of you know, lava-rich soil, Kona coffee. Um, so it grows things magically. You've got resurrection posts as just fence posts with all of this lava crust that gathers on them, they become trees again. I mean, it's so it's hugely fertile. And so the God, again, God does the best of things in the worst of times. So we're ripe for some of the best. But, um, but these are very, it's a very dangerous time. I want to ask you about your, your own journey. The, the people I am with, um, it seems like they're very interested in why we believe before they want to know what we believe. There's this question, why? But why would somebody become a theologian? Why would he stand, give his life to, to you know, proclaim this different way of life? And why is he so excited about Jesus and so on? And I found that a lot of people have an early story and a later story. Did you grow up in a, in a Christian family? Yeah, I, I come out of a... Uh holiness, strong holiness. My mother was actually, I'm a PK. My mother was a preacher. She was ordained in the Pilgrim Holiness Church, mm. a PH church, they call it. it it's um, I call them the Marine Corps of Methodism. They're really hardcore. Women sh showed no skin. They didn't, nobody wore jewelry because that was money that was stolen from the poor if you wore jewelry. You didn't curl or bob your hair. Um, and so, um, very strong, hardcore, almost close to Mennonite Amish as you can get. Uh, my father was a little more liberal. He's free Methodist, but that's still holiness. Um, so we were very... Uh, my mother did send us to public schools, but she did so with the mantra, uh, first of all, um, I'm not going to isolate you boys. I have two younger brothers. We're all a year apart. I'm not going to isolate you boys, but I am going to insulate you. Hmm. So I'm not going to isolate you from the world, but I am going to insulate you. So we were, we went to public schools, but we were homeschooled in Christianity. We had family prayer twice a day. Um, we had to memorize 12 Bible verses a week starting at age five. So it was really a rigorous home environment and uh, um, very, very strict. 
very very Mennonite Amish. Did you ever rebel against that? Yeah, at 17, I, I say my biggest spiritual experience growing up was a deconversion. I deconverted at 17. I said, I'm out of here, and I became a real radical. I had my Marxist phase, and I had my Maoist phase, and I was basically a raging atheist for like six years. I just raging against God and the church and all that stuff. And uh, But what kept me, so it was my liminal period, if you will. My, you know, you'd got, but liminality works as long as you keep tracking with the river. You know, you, it's swampy. It's, it's messy. Um, and it's not pretty. And that was my liminality for those. I didn't just sow wild oats. I planted a prairie. I mean, it was just, you know, I just, everything that I was told you couldn't do, I did. So, but what kept me tracking was um, we were very poor. Uh, the street I grew up on was called Hungry Hill because that's where the poorest people in town lived. And uh, so I had to make money. And I, I was somewhat of a musician. I played the organ piano. And so I need, so the way in which I made some money was I played in churches for organ. So I was, even during my deconversion stage when I was, you know, planning my prairie, um, I was at church every Sunday getting money to play the organ for the worship. So I couldn't escape the, the church. I couldn't escape the preaching. I couldn't escape the, the scriptures. And um, so that kept me tracking with the river, even though it was, I was in the swamp. And then at 23, about then, I, I came back into the current. But that's the good thing about liminality is when the swamps purify, they get rid of the toxins. They, they help to restore the river as the water returns uh, in a purer and higher level. So I think that's so I think actually I thank God for that deconversion because I would not be here today because I came back with so I don't have you know my one of my brothers has huge issues with how we're growing up but he never he just when he when he bolted he didn't keep tracking he just went off and uh, and he he says you know we were it was child abuse the way we were brought up and by today's standards it probably would be but uh, I don't have any of that problem because. Um, I uh, I just got I dealt with it during that swamp period that liminal period so so that's how I I came back to to faith I, I went to the God is Dead seminary I, I went to uh, the place where Martin Luther King graduated from seminary so I was all about you know social justice and and uh, even the God is Dead movement and if you're going to talk theology at least be honest about it there is no God and um, or the kind of God that we think about is is totally uh, uh, different than than the one that actually is. So, so it was a it was a six years, yeah, hmm. of uh, my deconversion. What happened? What what brought you back? Um, well, that, it's a it's a long story, but I actually um, was I was making a quote a pastoral call. Because I couldn't get out of field education, and um, I had no interest in the church. I wanted to be a, a teacher, professor. But his name is Joe Pelham, who was dean at the time of the, the Colgate Rochester Bexell Crozer. 
um, the seminary where I went. He, um, and I was getting my PhD at the same time. So I just was in two degree programs at the same time. So I got my MDiv and PhD in four years because I just decided to do it all at once. But he insisted I do field education. So I had to work in a church. So they sent me on a blind call. And her name was Marge Wilkie. And she, uh, I didn't know where I was going, but it was the anniversary of her husband's death in Vietnam. And I did not have a number where I had to worry about getting getting drafted. And uh, so just that idea that that her husband had died, I could have been one of those that died. And then she started telling me about Jesus again. And that in my first pastoral call, I ended up on the on, on the floor just praying, and she prayed over me, and um, I came back to faith and gave my life to Christ, really for the first time. Uh, before I'd been through my mother, but uh, this time it was through through me, and I made that that commitment and never looked back. Hmm. Hmm. You, uh, I heard you say that you've been. Uh, all about tsunamis, and now it's all about volcanoes, something like that. But that's island talk. It's because you live at this moment on an island. Um, tell us a little bit where you live now and uh, the vicinity there and yeah. and what effect. Uh, you know, you can kind of use that as a metaphor. For yeah, well, I started in 1994. I started doing this. I'm trained as a historical, as a historian, specialty in, in slavery studies and African-American and then I also um, was trained as a historical theologian, so it's really basically historical. And, and, um, and um, so I, I started writing for other scholars, just academic stuff and journal articles and books for other scholars. And then in 1994, I uh, decided I would use my historical skills as a historian and look at the culture, today's culture. So I wrote a book called Faith Quakes. And so I said, to, you know, the culture had been hit by an earthquake. And then I realized very quickly that it was much more radical than that. And so five years later, I published a book called Soul Tsunami. Where, no, it wasn't an earthquake. It was a tsunami. And, um, and then uh, that was a bestseller. And, and so they, the 20th anniversary, they wanted a, a new book on it. And I live on the Pacific Ring of Fire, one of those rims, volcanic rims that... Mount Rainier is an active volcano. We have the the, the faults. We have fault lines everywhere. Um, we experience little little tremors, earthquakes all the time. So, um, so it I realized that 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 metaphor of the volcano is really probably a better one for because every, all these things are these these mountains are popping all just just exploding all over the world and. And it's a very, very dangerous time. Um, I spent a lot of time in the book talking about uh, the grainy future, G-R-A-I-N, genetic engineering, robotics, artificial intelligence, uh, information technology, and nanotechnology. And uh, each one of those is its own volcano. I mean, just spewing all sorts of very uh, dangerous, but also, again, lava-rich soil, healing uh, properties. So... Um, so that's the, so I, that's where I got the volcano. Now, if I do it another, in another 20 years, if I, the only thing left for me is asteroids. So I have to, <laughs> have to figure out, so I'm going from earthquakes to tsunamis to volcanoes and 
Well, it'll be an asteroid next, I guess. I don't know, but it's a it's a very it, it seemed to be a productive metaphor to, on which to think about the future. There won't be time to, to go into all of that, but maybe one or two of those mega trends that you that you name um, this uh, world that's becoming more and more artificially intelligent. Would you like to say something there? Yeah, of, of the five in the, that grain, G-R-A-I-N, each one, I think you're right. I think artificial intelligence is, I think it will have the impact on the planet that, that fire did. I mean, I think it's really that significant discovery. We're not realizing how important it is and how it's already there. The discovery of fire, that, that same kind of... Yeah, artificial intelligence, sure. yeah. And it, it's, a, it's already, we're already well into it, but don't even know it. So part well, of it is Elon a, Musk is scared, so you can just well, he's, yeah, you know, exactly he's scared, right. and, yeah, and, he's, and he's quite vocal about it. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Sure. And so uh, in 1999, Bill Joy, who was one of the co-founders of uh, Sun Microsystems, invented Java. It was really one of the creators of the uh, internet. He uh, he wrote a, a, a little article in Wired magazine. Does the future need us? And he, he's, he's not a you know, Christian in any way or a person of faith or even religious, but he's looking at what scientists are doing on the cutting edges of these areas. Um, and I don't even think he mentioned artificial intelligence at the time, but, um, but he, he, he got so scared just looking at it. He said, we need to really declare Scientists, let's declare a moratorium on cutting-edge research in these things till we can convince the ethicists, the philosophers, the theologians, the religious people, and people thinking about ethics and morality to talk to us because we are so far ahead of any ethical and moral reflection or comprehension on what we're doing that um, you know, one decision uh, could, could change everything and not for the good. And uh, that was 1999, you know. And so it, it is a, a time where we really, I mean, the potential here for good is unbelievable. But the potential for, potential for evil is unbelievable. I mean, this is not my metaphor. I forget. It may have been his, but although it's not in this article. But um, would you get in a plane and fly on a plane where in the back of every seat was a button which if somebody pushed that button, would destroy the whole plane. And that's where we are now. The, with the democratization of all of these uh, areas of cutting-edge science and technology, that one person has the potential to bring the whole down just with one push of a button. And uh, so we really, we're talking about a lot of stuff that is so useless to talk about. And we really need to start talking about what, basically, what does it mean to be human? Yeah. I mean, that's the basic, what does it mean to be human in a world where people don't seem to know how to be human anymore? The word humane seems to be a foreign, strange word. And where the, when we're already all cyborgs, we're all cyborgs now already. Everybody's part born and part made. There's nobody not part born and part made now. So if we're all cyborgs, then what does it mean to continue to be human in a in a world of where we're all cyborgs? Yeah. And um, so that's the. Yeah. I listened to the Noam Chomsky. Um, somebody asked him, "Where are we now?" And he said, "Well, one way of explaining it is 
humanity has created a few sledgehammers for the first time that really could destroy humanity or at least organized humanity um, and for the first time we, we are we are that that powerful and that strong so that is uh, that is pretty scary yeah one of the the interesting um, trends that you also name is that uh, Christianity is becoming more and more unpopular and it will most probably uh, be like that it will increase the unpopularity of Christianity in, in the near future well it's it's, it's it's unpopularity, but it's also, I, I talk about, um, this I talked about in Soul Tsunami 20 years ago. And my first, I had, um, each one was a different uh, different tsunami that it hit. And, and I talked about the post-Christian culture. And I said, we're soon going to be anti-Christian. And the first persecutions or prosecutions. And I had no idea. I mean, so today. not only unpopular, it's anti-Christian. Bingo. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I mean, here is um, Mary McAleese, who is former Prime Minister of Ireland, or President, I forget what they have, at any rate. But she's also a canon lawyer in the Roman Catholic Church. But just a couple of weeks ago, she gave a speech where she argued that baptism ought to be, infant baptism is a human rights violation, that mm-hmm. any child baptized by its parents uh, violates their human dignity and right to choose what religion they want, and it ought to be seen as a human rights violation. Now, here's a Christian, canon lawyer in the Roman Catholic Church, former head of Ireland, the whole country, who's coming out with baptism as being a human rights violation. Mm. I mean, welcome to your world. This is... This is, I mean, China has decided to really crack down just in the past couple of years. I mean, last year, 90 million Christians in China were under biometric surveillance. I mean, they're, and um, just last year alone, 2019, 5,500 churches were closed. Um, so, but it's not just in, so it's not, it's, it, it's, it's post-Christian, it's anti-Christian, but in the U.S., if you live in the Northeast or Northwest, right, either place, and you say overtly, I am a follower of Jesus, you will pay for it. You will pay. I mean, the, we've gone in my lifetime from the home court advantage going to Christianity to now they're not only away games, but the crowds are not cheering in any way for the Christians to have any say or success. Um, sit down, shut up, get the Zens their chance, get the atheists their chance. You had 200 years, you blew it, we're done with you, shut up. And that's kind of the... But it's not a movement or a trend against spirituality. It's a trend against Christianity. People have a spiritual longing. Yeah, well, I mean, we have a, a Burning Man festival. I mean, you can't get more spiritual than that, but it's, it's really a one big ecstatic religious experience that takes place in the desert every year. Uh, but it's, it's not Christian in any way. It's very deeply. Uh, but you're seeing, that's why I do not think, I make this case in the book, uh, but I do not see this culture as being a secular culture. In this whole secularization theory, this co- we are not getting more secular. We're, we're just sacralizing everything. I mean, sports now is a religion. Politics is a religion. Everything, uh, celebrity culture is another religion. 
uh, you know, consumerism is a religion. I mean, we, we turn into, we sacralize everything we touch. So it, we're back to the ancient pantheon of gods. You've got a plurality of gods out there. It's polytheistic. Um, and you've got many, many gods, and people worship at many altars. And um, so it's not, so I think the secularization theory that we've been taught to think about, this culture is getting more secular. No, it's, I mean, we have something called the Super Bowl. If that, that's a whole religious festival. Are you kidding me? It's a, it's a civil religious festival where everybody's celebrating America, actually. They're celebrating what it means to be an American. And um, that's why what happens at halftime is so important. It's a religious ritual at halftime. And so everything is exaggerated and, and uh, intensified. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't see this culture as becoming more secular. I see it as actually is becoming mu- everything we touch, we're turning into something that is sacred. Wall Street becomes a sacred religion. Everything is sacralized. And, and um, so Christianity then becomes one how do, how do we speak into that culture of many, many gods? And that's where we're back in the first century. In many ways, that's, there's a lot of first century stuff in the 21st century. So it, it, the church is losing strength of Christianity, but you, you once said that our power does not lie in our strength, but in our weakness. Yeah, and that's why I think this is such an exciting time. Um, I mean, I, I look at many ways, all ages equidistant from eternity. You get huge Blessings, but you get hurt, huge curses. Now we're into massive blessings, but the curses are huge. Uh, but I also um, really think that God does the best of things in the worst of times. And so we are, we are at a point where um, if we will move into the future with hope and with confidence and with trust and with a real focus on Jesus, it could be some of the best days uh, for the church. It won't be the church as we know it. It'd be a, a new church, a very different kind of church. I mean, in the U.S., the churches that are thriving now, um, you have you have some megachurches, but megachurches are basically the the you know musical saints. You know, they're just when a, when a Walmart moves in, what happens to the mom and stores? When a megachurch what moves in, what happens to the mom and churches? Just you know, hopping and shopping. But when you really see the church expanding, is you got, you got a table church where churches are forming around tables and. The table is coming back, and we're having all sorts of new experiences of, of table time and table fellowship and table communities and, and uh, just all sorts of new ways of thinking about how you do church and doing church in tattoo parlors. You know, and you gather a, a, a community of tattoo people and just live with them and be with them and, and worship with them and, and introduce Jesus to them. And so there's a whole different way of thinking about about church, and that's forming, but it hasn't gotten a lot of attention. But it's a, it's an incredible movement. Um, but it's not, you know, little steeple church based. But it's not so much, um, if I understand you correctly, a movement forward. You know, the church must also just keep with this technology and uh, communication things and whatever. It's it's also moved backwards. Uh, rediscovering the the early church uh, was a, they were a small church with um, no freedom of speech actually actually the church has grown the fastest in the time when they couldn't speak publicly exactly. maybe the problem is not that we don't talk enough yeah um, 
they did a lot with very little. Yeah. They um, they used the darkest moments seemed to be their growth. You know, their, their testimony mattered the most. The community saw the the way they used they handled injustice. That's the only time sometimes they were hurt in public was yeah. with the persecutions, as if their darkest times were was the the brightest uh, moments. So it's it's also about rediscovering these these ancient truths. Yeah. Um, you you said something about being relevant, that um, maybe you can you can you can say. Well, that. I don't like the word relevant. Yeah. Because relevant relevancy connotes recency. Yes. And for me, the most relevant things are often the most ancient. So I coined that phrase, ancient future, that um, that um, you know became famous and in another context, but. But uh, there's a both, and we got to celebrate both. There's a push from the past that we need to take seriously. And a lot of times I just been rummaging around the attic of the church in the history and just finding old old stuff in the basements and attics that we'd forgotten about and bringing them out and saying, hey, church, look at this. You know, this is. Um, so there's a push from the past, but at the same time, there's a pull from the future. And that Jesus pushes us from behind and he he pulls us from the future so it's push and pull and the problem is the church doesn't know either it doesn't know the push from the past i mean microsoft owes us royalty payments we had the cloud before they did we had that great cloud witness that's where the memory is stored and we we don't exist we don't live out of the cloud we don't even know the cloud we don't consult the cloud we don't talk to the cloud um the cloud is not part of our everyday life and it should be it's yeah. that push from the past that cloud of i mean i talked to to um, you know, um, not, not just John Wesley every day. I talk to Augustine every day, and I talk to Aquinas every day. We have these big conversations and feuds, and so that's living out out of the past. From the, you live out of the past, not in the past. But at the same time, the church doesn't know what it means to be pulled into the future because Jesus is already in this future. He's already there. He's pulling us towards Him, and. Um, there's a. I'm going to show this. I think uh, tomorrow, maybe not. I don't know. But there are a whole series of YouTubes about dogs that, for some reason, have been spooked by going through a door. Like they they went through a door when they were a puppy, and the door was glass, so they got hurt. So they would never go face forward into a door. So they have to back up, turn around, and they they go. You know rear forward into the future very tenderly, tender, you know, very gingerly and, and haltingly. And that's kind of, the, if it goes into the future at all, it's, you know, ass first and, uh, and just totally scared and spooked. And then once it gets through, it turns around and looks around. No, no, we can, you know, we, we've got the courage and the boldness and the confidence to go face forward, to face and outface this future. Uh, with with Jesus as our our lamp and our our, our light and and so it's exciting if we're not going to be you know um, just stuck in the middle and uh, so I I want the push from the past and I want the pull from the future both when you when you say that and also when you talk about the cloud you you you're speaking to Wesley and I thought about Carl uh, Rahner about a century ago he said that the Christian of the future will be a mystic. Or not a Christian at all, and you see this, you know, the, the, our popular Richard Raw is these days, and uh, Saint Francis of Assisi, and all the books write, written about him, and 
you also think that there's a, there's a new mysticism Christianity actually needs to rediscover in, in themselves. Yeah, but I I don't I don't see it as a kind of a hocus pocus mysticism. Mm, I see it as more of a a real connection with with the ancestors, with the roots, with uh, the transcendence. I mean, the cross has both transcendent and imminent, and you bring the two together. And so part of that promise that people are hungering for transcendence. And the, I love the word rapture, the, the rapture. Uh, but the rapture, I grew up with the rapture is taking us out of the world. No, really people hungry for the rapture of, of being in the world in a whole new way and in, in a whole new way that experiences the divine dimensions. To, But I mean, if you think of um, Mother Teresa, of uh, uh, Gregory Boyle, whom I see, see you quote in your book, um, they, they have a mystic side, but it's that kind of mysticism. Yeah, exactly. Henry, Wesley. Henry Nouwen, you know, it's, 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 it's a prayerful, but... And, and and so on, but it's very close to the earth, you know. It's, yeah, it is. It's not, very organic. It's not taking them away from the earth. Bingo. It's, it's bringing yeah. them down yeah. to the that's, earth. So that's the rapture. Yeah. You're just, you know, the rapture of being alive yeah. in Christ. And that's mm. the that's what people are hungry for. It's that interesting. Rapture. Even in the, in the charismatic movement, I had a, an interview with Heidi Baker. And... Um, and I asked her, and she did a PhD also in theology and, and so on, and she, I, I asked her about it, and she, she said, I'm not a theologian, I'm a mystic. So it's this new, all over, I mean, from the, the Catholics always been there, and they love the mystics, but in our, you know, in the Reformed Church that I'm past, part of, yeah. but even in the Charismatic Church, there's this, this new rediscovery, and, and it's a very interesting thing uh, for me. But, but I, I also think the danger well, is that it, if it will just take us away, it's not helping us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's and, just an escape, you know. Yeah, but there, there is an open, and that's why Pentecostal was doing so well worldwide. There's this openness to the supernatural. Yeah. Um, and that, I mean, for example, um, spiritual gifts, okay. So that, that's everybody in the U.S. You got all these spiritual gifts inventories. You got all these. Everybody knows what their spiritual gifts are, you know. And okay, you live and minister out of your giftedness, and you know. And okay, well, that's your, your strengths. And and uh, I'm going okay. Well, that's all very interesting, you know, because you first of all, a gift is something already given. So God gave you these already. So it's your your job and mine to cultivate them, to grow them. But they're already gifts, you know. It's not as if you got to ask a guy for these gifts. They're yours. With your birth, you have these gifts. You have these strengths. Now, it's your, our job to cultivate them. But, so you bless others naturally through your gifts. But that's, that's not, the story of the Bible is not God calling everybody out of their giftedness. Moses, I want you. What do you want me to do? I want you to stand up to Pharaoh and, and look him in the eye. Yeah. Yeah, God's strength yeah. is made perfect in our weakness. So show me stutters must speak. Show me a weakness inventory. <laughs> show, that is beautiful. So wow. there's no weakness inventory. No, so you bless others naturally through your gifts. See, that's why we love those because we don't want to need God. But you bless others supernaturally through your weakness, where God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. And so it's that's again the cross that's crossed. A heresy is a cross on cross. You're only hearing one thing. If I'm only hearing spiritual strengths, spiritual gifts, I'm not hearing, no. But the greatest work God's ever going to do in and through me is not out of my giftedness. 
when I least expect it, God's going to call me, as God called Moses, as God called Jeremiah, as God called them all, to bless others out of the point where we're most weak and most vulnerable. And, and basically, you can't separate our strengths from our weaknesses, because that, that's what makes us unique. It's yeah. both together. You know, the very best in me is a hair's breadth distance from the very worst in me. You know, the best and the worst are, are so tied together, you can't separate them. And the same with the strengths and weaknesses. But, and that's where the, the mystical comes in. Why, what does it mean the guy wants to, you know, and that's where prayer comes in. Um, you know, prayer is a powerful force. But it's not, we, we believe it's the trees that move the wind. And even the church believes it's the trees that move the wind. And we don't understand the power is in the wind, the invisible, the unseen, the mystical, if you will. But it's it, it, the trees acknowledge it too, because when the wind blows, they bow and they bend. But also, I think a, a nice um, contribution of, of that way of thinking is at least acknowledging that if I don't understand, it doesn't. It's not opposing my faith to stand in awe be, be, before a mystery. Right. You know, not understanding the sea. You standing there, I, right. I saw a picture of you standing on your stoop looking over the ocean and understanding that, that I, I, see, I only see the roof of the sea and, I, and there's such mystery there that actually it would build your faith and not, yeah. um, not decrease your faith. It's, you know, stand, saying wow is actually a wonderful prayer. Yeah. Yeah, 20 years ago, I wrote a book that got me banned in all the Lifeway stores in the U.S. That's the Southern Baptist bookstores. They were the number ones. But it was called uh, Out of the Question, Into the Mystery. Mm. That was the title. Out of the Question, which is a double play, actually. But Out of the Question, Into the Mystery. And then the subtitle was Getting Lost in the God-Life Relationship. Mm. And uh, the phrase there, getting lost, was where Wesley talks about, what does it mean? He talks about lost in wonder, love and praise. The ultimate is is to just get lost in the wonder and the love and the praise of God. And so um, so part of the mystery is, you know, that's why the Bible teaches us not how to, answer, to get the right answers, but to live the mystery. It's a mystery. And then we celebrate and embrace the mystery. Hmm. So. Sure. Wow, that's beautiful. You also talk a lot about, I mean, in, in I, I haven't read all your books, but... <laughs> Incarnation is important, and embodiment, and huge. And um, yeah. Yeah. Is, is that the answer for these trends? The yeah, and that's that's why I think it's really dangerous for us to talk about saving souls. You know, the the cross is all about Jesus saving souls. I mean, that's so disembodied. No, Jesus didn't just Jesus didn't die on the cross to save souls. He died on the cross to save minds, bodies, spirits, the whole thing. You know, the salvation story is all about. The whole, not just your soul. It's your mind, your body. So there's this incarnate, in the flesh uh, aspect to, to the story that, that we miss. And that's why I love the Eastern traditions uh, of Orthodoxy in that the centerpiece of doctrine is the incarnation. It's all about the incarnation. And I see the incarnation story beginning with creation. You cannot separate creation from incarnation because God, God begins to reveal who God is the moment God creates the universe. And that's the moment where the incarnation begins. Now, it's not the fullest incarnation. That's in Jesus. That's the complete and absolute incarnation. But the whole story of, of the self-revelation and unveiling 
of God. And God wants to share God's being with us. God wants to share who God is. And that begins with creation. So for me, the incarnation, and that's very orthodox actually, the incarnation begins with, with creation. But for, for Christians, often the incarnation, they would agree on that, or us, <laughs> we would agree on that. But we are not only called to tell how Jesus came down to earth, uh, how, how he gave his life. We are called to also do it, also give our lives. I mean, the incarnation idea is not only for us to realize that Jesus did it, but for us to follow him in doing that, in, in also entering into different worlds, cross borders, going to the darkness, intentionally touching reality. Yeah, but I, I'm even more radical than that. I mean, because the incarnation is an ongoing incarnation. And the Christ wants to be, I mean, we have a language for it. We don't understand the significance of it. Christ wants to live his resurrection life in and through us, which means we become part of the ongoing incarnation yeah. of Christ. So Jesus is at two places now. He's, a, he's at the right hand of the Father as he ascended into heaven. But at the same time, he says, good for you that I go away because I'm going to send you the Spirit that's going to bring me to life in every one of you. So there's no distance there. You hear what I'm saying? So, I mean, I wrote a book called I'm a Follower where I'm trying to, I was critiquing the whole leadership fetish. But even then, that follower metaphor implies distance because you follow something that's ahead of you, which is better than, you know, that I'm a leader and, you know, where's Jesus and all this. But but we're, we're not, not talking about mimicking something. We're talking about manifesting something. And that's a huge shift. What does it mean that in as much as you did on the least of these, you did it to me? I mean, Christ wants to share his resurrection life and live his resurrection power in each one of us. So we become, we're, we're Christian, literally means little Christ. Um, so we become each of us. For the world, a little Christ. So what does it mean for us, not just to do Jesus, but to do Jesus by being Jesus for the world? Other people are see Jesus in us. Not just that we're following Jesus, but that we are. So I'm, I'm even more radical than, than the imitation stuff. I want the impartation of Christ through the implantation of his Holy Spirit so that each of us becomes uh, a third testament. Each of us becomes a fifth gospel. Each of us becomes a little Christ where he takes form in us. So faith formation is really Christ formation. It's not discipleship formation. It's Christ formation. Mm. Yeah, one way for me to think about it is to say we must have the passion for Jesus, but we must also have the passion of Jesus. It starts to live in you. The guys who said, when Jesus said, I was hungry, he gave me something to eat, thirsty, they said, when did we do it? It's as if they didn't know we're doing it for God. You know, they didn't do it because they had a passion for God. I believe they did have a passion for God. But it is as if now the passion of Jesus was living in them. They just Bingo. Yeah. did it. Yeah, exactly. It was, yeah, it's just part of their second nature then. Yeah. yeah. But why don't we see enough of that? You got, you got me. Partly it's because we, we've... Must you know it to live it? Partly Once it's, you wake up to it. Yeah. Partly is, is Christ is missing. I mean, Jesus, in most of our sermons, 
never makes an appearance. Mm. I mean, um, I, I have students studying sermons, and most sermons don't even, where Jesus is mentioned at all, it's rhetorical. Um, I've wondered if we shouldn't go through, a, and, and I'm on that, that's the bee in my bonnet now, you know, everywhere. I get a chance to speak. I say, I challenge you to read the four Gospels every year. But I wonder if we shouldn't challenge each other as, as pastors to say, listen, let's just preach the four Gospels for the next 10 years. Because I, I don't think we, I, I think a lot of people haven't looked at Jesus, yeah. you know, really the raw, wild, exactly. untamed Jesus in a long time. They've yeah. just got the second, third, and. Yeah. Um, you know, idea of Jesus. Yeah. They, they, they I, I say, I, I, the book on this is called Jesus Manifesto, but the, the number one affliction of the church today, in the U.S. at least, is, I call it JDD, Jesus Deficit Disorder. Yeah, sure. And, and we are just, we're missing Jesus, and, and when you miss Jesus, you're missing the whole point. The point is not a point, it's a person. It's a person. And um, we're so busy with our points that we've... If I be lifted up, I will draw. So we're lifting, we don't believe him to do what he says he's going to do. So we're lifting up this blueprint and lifting up this cause. We replace Christ with causes. We lift up this, you know, this strategy, this, this program. No, your job and mine is to lift him up and then get out of the way. Trust him to do what he says he's going to do. And uh, just uh, lift him up and... Uh, and just that that's the job I see as the preacher, is to lift him up. It's an interesting uh, thing that I observe uh, when I studied also. It seemed like some people are in love with the Bible. <laughs> and the Bible is supposed to be helping us to be in love with Jesus. You yeah, know, it's, hello. It's as if I know it, exactly. Even something very good could take the place of Jesus. Yeah. And, and it could distract you so badly. This, this came home to me. I was in a panel about the the renewal of the church and what, what, what could take to do it. And, and there's one guy there who uh, was very famous, and at least in the U.S., and he kept saying, we got to return to the Bible, and it's all about the Bible mm. and the Bible, Bible. And I'm going, uh, but it's Jesus. we got to rediscover Jesus. And, re and so finally I just couldn't take it anymore. And I just said, you know, I think some people think that heaven's going to be this Bible study and that we're going to get to heaven and just spend our time in a Bible study. And and he me he goes what well, I fully expect to spend the first ten thousand maybe longer years doing a Bible study so I can you know and and Jesus will be teaching the Bible study <laughs> but you got Jesus and I didn't even then I was too embarrassed I want, didn't want to point him to John five where even Jesus says but the scriptures speak of me yeah. he is the new Torah he's the in flesh Torah mm. I mean he, Jesus is the living Torah. It's not anti-Torah. He becomes the Torah. So how in the world did we get this, yeah, this bibliolatry where we're worshiping the book when the book is there to point us to Christ? Yeah, sure. It's as if history just repeats itself. You know, this, the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it's as if they could handle God in a temple. They could handle a God in the history. They could handle God in the book. They could handle a God in the law, but not a vulnerable person, not good, not a naked God on a cross. Yeah, that freaked them out. Yeah, exactly. And um, 
and it's it's as if that's the that's the, the point we just tend to miss the whole time. Yeah, yeah, couldn't agree more. Exactly right. And uh, yeah, although notice Jesus died as he lived in company with bad people. There's not just one cross. The story of Calvary is not the story of Jesus dying on the cross by himself. There's two other people with him. He died as he lived in company with bad people, with criminals, convicts, um, the outcast. And um, so I think that's part of it too, is that there's this, how Jesus comes to us is not in a way in which we would like him to come to us. He comes to us in company with people that we uh, we don't know how to deal with and handle. This is, this is kind of like a, a geography to certain places where you will find a certain part of God of who Jesus is. Uh, I mean, Gregory Boyle, he would, Father Gregory Boyle, he would tell of how he experienced something unique about Jesus with a, sitting with a prostitute, chatting to her or a convict or a, I mean, that's his story. Uh, that's the story of Mother Teresa. She, she would see and find something of Christ, you know, the Christ who said, I'm hungry and I'm thirsty. And, and it's, yeah. it's as if, the, you know, we are open for the revelation that God will speak to us through nature and through the Bible and through history and through each other and so on. But, but I think maybe, maybe um, we don't realize that he, he wants to, that there's a unique part of his revelation that's to be found you know, amongst the the vulnerable and the poor and the, the broken yeah. and the sinners and the, and the dark spaces that, yeah. that, that, that you find. You and that's why that. I don't like the center metaphor. I, Jesus, I tell my students I'm, I'm going to spend the next couple of years decentering you because that's what Jesus does. He, he moves us away from the center, okay. which is where it's safe and yeah. where the power, we think the power is. But really, Jesus moves us to the margins, to the edges, to the mm -hmm. periphery. And that's where the future forms anyways. The future doesn't form in the center. Yeah. The future forms on the edges where you see the horizons uh, yeah. out there. And uh, I mean, he chose his disciples not from the center. He chose disciples from the margins, from the yeah, edges. And John the Baptist, I mean, talk about a guy on the edge. Marginal figure. And I mean, even St. Francis of Assisi, Richard Raw makes this, this case, he says... Very little happens, change happens in the center of any movement. Yeah. It, it happens on the inside of the edge, you, you would call it. And those who would walk across the edge, but they would still be, be urged, they would still be part of the community. Paul is a Jew, but he writes in Greek and he stands up for, for the Gentiles. And, um, you know, but he, he, he still has his voice. He still, he still let Timothy be circumcised so that the, the Jewish elders would, would hear him. He's still part of the group. and It's a, it's a difficult, um, difficult thing to do. Yeah, but we have a... This is my, this is the, my problem with some of the uh, spiritual disciplines language. You know, Jesus is my center. Yeah. You know, well, what's your, what's your circumference then? You know, <laughs> is he not your circumference? He's just your center? No, Jesus wants to be your You're center. You're everything. You're everything, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, you sure. know, and... I'm going to center in, in, well, I mean, so that means you're going to go inside yourself. I mean, but I thought Jesus is, you know, you find yourself by losing yourself, by going yeah. outside yourself. I mean, yeah, so the whole sure. language of, of a lot of the centering stuff in the modern world was all about the center. We, we got to go to the center of power. And, and that's why I'm not a big, uh, you know, the, the ultimate change doesn't come from the centers. It doesn't. Mm. It comes from the margins, the edges, the periphery. 
Yeah, how radical should we be with that? How radical should we should we be with um, with with this margin thing? Should we? Um, well, as radical as Jesus. I mean, that's the. I don't know. If, I, that's just. What, why I ask you is, is these days it seems radical to do some of the most simple, normal Christian things. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when the, the, the new pope was was elected, he greeted. There's these beautiful stories. He helped the one disabled, um, one of the leaders' fathers. He, he helped him just after he was elected. He drove with a bus. He would live in the in the flat just before that. He would do these humble things, and I thought. Why is everybody so surprised? Isn't that yeah, just the normal okay. Christian yeah. things to do? I'll tell you another place where I realized that. I, I, um, and that's why I asked the question about radical. Is uh, I, I lived in, in India and Calcutta for a while, different places then. I worked with Sisters of Charity, Mother Teresa's uh, nuns. And I just woke up one day and I thought, why is this the radical exception in the Christian world, everybody wants to come and see it. Wasn't this supposed to be the normal thing? And the radical or the weird thing would be the the guy who just sits in his study and think and I don't know whatever. But but normal is so normal isn't what it's supposed to be for Christians, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I think I I use the acronym nuts and UTS. You know, there's normal people, and then there's nuts people. Never yeah. underestimate the spirit, and we are called to be, to be nuts people. Let just forget the normal. Just yeah. be. Never underestimate the spirit. What the spirit can do, and the the I love the radical metaphor, by the way. But but because it goes both ways. You radical means to the roots. Hmm. So you go down into the roots, and this also addresses the racism of the, the whole color thing, white is good, black is evil. No. The roots are in the dark. So part of it is to go deep into the darkness. That's where the mystery is. That's where the, 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 you know, the, the magic is. The miracle is in doubt, deep down in the roots, in the dark. So roots grow into the dark so that it can, the, the plant can grow strong into the light. So it's growing two directions it's at a, the same it's a game, time. It's both. Yeah, yeah it's both ends. Mm. So, so you, we grow. we got to get radical. Go down into the depths, into the very dirt, into the very deep, dark places where the mystery and, and uh, magic are and the unseen. And, but at the same time, out of the, that's where the nutrients are so that the plant then can grow into the light and produce the fruit and produce the flowers and produce the beauty. And uh, so it's it's a it's a both and thing, you know. You get you get more radical so that you can be more beautiful and more abundant and more and, and more um, um, more praising of God and God's glory and magnificence. So so I love that radical. But let's get the real meaning of it. Yeah. You're going down, yes. really down deep, down into the darkness. Yeah. But there's some there's some things we should start doing to get it going. If it's not happening, it's it's one of the things that astonished me in the four gospels is that Jesus spoke much more about what we should do and how we should live than he spoke how we should believe. Yeah, absolutely. And so there's this emphasis on on acting and doing. Someone said, I think it was Jean Venier, someone that said, 
we don't think ourselves into a new way of living, we live ourselves into a new way of thinking. And I think it's both, it's not the one or the other, but maybe in a in an age where we are have this all this information, I mean we don't have just more stuff and more freedom than the early church. We have more theology. We have more information and so on. Mm-hmm. That maybe the the, um, the there's certain acts that we need to start doing so that you, what what do you think there's some habits that that the, that Christians have to rediscover to to um, to actually get? My question is, how do we get to this place where where we are the the church in this in these new trends? Well, I I I love the word habits, habitudes, um, habitus. I, I think that's a really it's one way of looking at it. I also really like um, the word. I, I think of of us all, um, and I don't like the metaphor of work. All right, um, you get labor from the fall, after the fall. God put us creativity is a play paradigm. I mean, God. First time we meet God, you play music. You don't work music. You don't work a violin. Okay. <laughs> you don't work soccer. So artistry, excellence, beauty. There's discipline. Well, that's what that's what yeah, I'm going. Okay. But it's but every every good player who who really knows how to play an instrument has spent a lot of time in practice. And that's what our churches are not. They're not communities of practice where we allow each other. I mean, what what is this? Um, Malcolm Gladwell says, to get good at anything, you need 10,000 hours of practice. 10,000 hours. So just to, to the life of faith requires practice. you gotta, you got to practice. And, and you got to practice your instrument. Each one of us is a string instrument that you've got to learn. If we're going to make beautiful music to God and the gospel and, and play in harmony with each other, we got to... So... Um, like when you you have a kid, the kid brings home your an instrument, and they they turn your house into a an, a horror show of what they can do to the best music's ever been written. They massacre it, and and we go in there and tell them how much improved they are from yesterday, and and we give them encouragement, even though this is the worst thing we've ever heard. But we are encouraging them, and we're loving them forward, and and that's the churches ought to be communities where people can feel free to practice their instruments and know that they're going to hit some wrong notes and make some huge mistakes and massacre some beautiful music and beautiful texts. But we are all there to help each other to practice better, to learn better. And, and at the end of practice, there's, there's great freedom. I mean, in music, you'd say, then you can improvise. Bingo. There's nothing worse than a guy improvising that can't play the, Bingo. Exactly. the basics. Exactly right. Then you can improvise, and it's it's beautiful. Yeah. But I think we want to skip it, and maybe this overdose of information. Sometimes you know you you know everything about everything, but it's very shallow, and you you don't really become a master of of yeah. any, any sort yeah. of skill. So maybe maybe this uh, this emphasis on practices and and so on is very important. And I, I th- sometimes think it's like a guy going to the gym when we talk about the, the practice of prayer, um, and then people would go try it. They'll, you know, they'll go in solitude and pray and say, ah, oh, they didn't do nothing. But then I think it's like a guy going, you know, his pal says, you must gym, then you'll get muscles. 
and the six pack and so on. And after a week, he says, well, I've tried it. It doesn't work. And then you say, no, no, you're going to have to do it <laughs> exactly. for one year or two years or maybe a few, at least exactly right. eight months. And you're going to have to get into this habit and keep on doing it even if you don't see any results. And at the end, and I've seen that with Mother Teresa and some of these, these uh, and, and I mean, even Heidi Baker and on both sides of the, the theological spectrum, that these people, they have these kind sometimes nearly secret practices mm-hmm. that they you know they they would just have this consistency in doing certain things and, and getting and, and getting you know masters at it yeah that's how they master the the craft and and uh so yeah i i uh i really think that for the church to see itself as a community that not of perfection we expect people immediately they follow Jesus and now they got to play a perfect instrument. Really? No. Let's let's, let's be kind to each other. Yeah. Let's encourage each other. It's going to take other. time and yeah, and falling down and, and when and when they do fall down, let's not judge them and mm. pounce on them and kick them out, but let's encourage them and help them up again and and as we do with our kids. Oh, that was so much better than yesterday. <laughs> and being hard on ourselves and soft on others, maybe, yeah. when it comes to these practices. Yeah, exactly. You know, having a lot of grace for others, but yeah. disciplining yourself. We, right. we normally want to do it the other way around. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I, I heard you say that you're working on a new book. Uh, is it The Jesus Human? Or The Human Jesus? Yeah, that's the... I have a book coming out um, next month. But I also am working on a Jesus human is the title of it, a Jesus human, which is it's showing how the particular and the universal go together. And um, the Jesus died and lived and rose again, not to show us how to be a new kind of Christian or even a new kind of Jew, but show us how to be the original human God made us to be. I mean, he's the last Adam, the second Adam. He's returning us to that garden relationship that we initially had in the first Adam. That's why the first person who who he appears to doesn't recognize him. None of them do. All of his post-resurrection appearances, none of them do. But the first one is Mary. She doesn't recognize him. She thinks he's the gardener. That's the semiotic flair, if you will, to tell us we're back in the garden. And he's, he's restored humanity to its initial place. But um, so... So what does it mean to be human? Now, part of that is you can't be human. Uniqueness of the human is that you can't be human without the divine. That doesn't mean the human becomes divine. But for us to be fully human, I mean, that's where God takes dirt, adds water, fashions it, and then draws, then blows breath. But not just any breath, God's breath. So to be human, that first Adam, it needs the divine breath. It needs the divine to be human. And, um, but, so that's the universal. And we all need to work with that. I don't care whether you're an atheist, whether you're a Hindu, whether you're Muslim, whatever. we got to work together on what it means to be human in this world, especially with all these challenges that we've been talking about. So how do we lock arms with people of other religious traditions or no religious tradition and, and, and strive together to be to live human, fully human lives together. At the same time, I believe that your best shot at being human, the definitive, ultimate um, way to be human is to be a Jesus human. That Jesus was the fullest and, and uh, 
revelation of what it means to be human. So the tribal and the particular and the universal. That's the scandal of particularity. Is that scandal of I want to be a Jesus human. And I believe Jesus is the fullest uh, expression of what it means to be to be human. So to bring the two together, the particular and the universal, uh, a Jesus human. Sure. Looking forward to that. Thank you. Leonard Tweet, thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Good to be here with you. Thank you.